All right, you know, uh, we're going to be kind of hopping around a little bit. We're going to be in the book of Romans a little bit, but we'll be elsewhere as well. And I want a little message called Killing the Old Man. Killing the Old Man. Do you realize that all of you have an old man? And I don't mean your daddy. <laughs> I don't mean your husband. Uh, and, and whether you're a guy or a gal, you have an old man, and that it refers to the old person that you used to be. The old, your old self, the old person that used to rule your life, the flesh. And we talk often as Christians how we have three main enemies. The world system, the corrupt evil world system, the flesh, that's our fallen human nature, and the devil. And how many of you found out that the day you became a Christian, the world system didn't go away, the devil didn't go away, and your fallen human nature didn't just go away. That it was right there wanting to be revived in you. But when you became a Christian and first began to follow Christ, the very time when you were truly born again and decided to put Christ first in your life, it was that very day that you decided to leave the old life behind. If you're saying, no, when I became a Christian, I was embracing the old life. I wanted, enough, I wanted everything to do with the old life. Then I would say that wasn't the day you became a Christian because you, you have to repent, Amen before you can have faith because the Bible puts repentance before faith. Repentance is change of heart, of change of mind about our old life, our sin, and all that. And it's a turning away from that, that rebellion against God and embrace to turn to embrace him in faith, amen? So the day you put your faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, by which you're saved, that very day there was a turning in your heart against rebellion against the old self, the old life that used to be living. I'm not saying perfectly. I don't think anybody's repentance is absolutely perfect, but in your heart of hearts deep down, you turned to the Lord in faith to save you. And Jesus said, nobody can come after me and be my disciple unless he what? Denies his what? Denies himself, right? Daily, right? How often daily? Takes up his cross, which was self-crucifixion, right? And follows me. So when we first became Christians... Genuine believers don't live for themselves anymore. We live to be a blessing to God and others, amen? And we now no longer live for the flesh and live to feed its sinful desires. And when we're talking about the flesh, we're not talking principally about your physical body. We're talking about the sinful aspect of the human nature, which often finds itself manifested through the human body, but... The interesting thing in the scripture is that the flesh is sometimes translated, the, the, Hebrew, the Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X, you could pronounce it sarx, uh, as opposed to uh, suke, which is soul, and spirit, which is pneuma in the Greek, or ruach in the uh, Hebrew. The word sarx oftentimes refers to the sinful nature. Sometimes it refers to the human flesh. But the NIV, if you have a new international version, it will translate the word sarx when it's referring to the sinful aspect of man, our sinful nature. It'll actually translate it sinful nature if you have the NIV. When you come to, it's more of a, a translation of, or you know, more of a thought translation than word for word. Otherwise, word for word, like the NSB, just translated flesh, you see. Uh, so, when you became a Christian, you deny that old man. You no longer, that person that was, you know, the old you, that was all about drugs or all about chasing the opposite sex or chasing just sex in general these days, you know, uh, drunkenness and drugs and wantonness and lust and envy and strife and quarreling and, uh, you know, brawling and, you know, thievery and whatever you were into, uh, whatever life-dominating sins, were, you know, you were about, they were tied to that old man, that old nature. So it's interesting that we understand the concept of sin, even though the word sin isn't used commonly in human vocabulary today, because Satan has done a good way of, a good job at getting people to, rec to think the main problems that humanity has are either economic, economic problems or some other social injustice, when all injustices are rooted in sin. And in Romans 4.15, the Bible says, For the law brings wrath. Brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. Did you catch that? Where there is no law, there is no what? No violation. And that's why the very fact that there is a moral law, divine moral law given by God, 
presupposes that there is sin. The very idea that there's sin presupposes that there is a divine law. Amen? And the Bible defines sin for us in 1 John 3, 4. It says, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. It's because of the law that we know what sin is. And Paul gets in some depth into how he discovered what sin was through the Mosaic law. But we're told that the law comes to humanity in a couple ways. It came to the Jews not only through conscience, but more specifically through the law at Mount Sinai, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. But it's interesting, Paul sums up the moral aspect of the law of Moses in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And Paul is emphasizing that part of the law that has to do with how you treat your neighbor. When you look at the Ten Commandments, which were given to Israel, the first four laws are vertical. The very first four laws, you know, primary laws have to do with, you know, not, you know, taking God's name in vain, you know, uh, not worshiping other gods before him, not worshiping other gods, period, not making images of him and so forth. So it's interesting, but there's also the horizontal aspect of the law where we love not just God with the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, but our neighbor as ourselves. And it's interesting because the Lord also real, revealed that it wasn't just at Mount Sinai that God gave law to humanity, but he also gave all of the Gentiles, everybody on earth, what's, you know, the law that's written in our hearts. And it's manifested through our consciences. And the word conscience, as you know, we've talked about this before. Con means with, shins or science means knowledge. With knowledge, we have a conscience. God has given us knowledge. And we expect people to know it's wrong to murder people. We expect people to know it's wrong to just go up and beat someone up or just steal something from somebody because the law is written in our conscience. And universally, most of humanity gets it, you know? It doesn't matter where you travel and to what country, it's wrong to murder people. It's wrong to steal. They have laws against perjury or bearing false witness. It's just interesting because those laws are written on our hearts. That's one of the great evidences of a creator, by the way. Okay? If I drive into Simi Valley and I see all these stop signs and no U-turn, red lights, and so forth, I don't just think, oh, those are put there by accident. And no, I realize that they have rhyme and reason to them and they're for order of, of, of the town and they're put there by some kind of intelligence. Well, <laughs> sometimes you look at politicians, you do scratch your head, you know. But when it comes to God-given law, law that's in our conscience, obviously it was put there by the Creator. Otherwise, you have total anarchy. Everybody be just destroying each other. So God's given us his moral law. And even though humanity has fallen and people are depraved, they haven't totally lost every aspect of the image of God because the peop folks still have consciences. Now, yes, indeed, the Bible does say you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. And I use examples like Ted Bundy, one of the most infamous serial killers who had mentioned earlier in his life he had a conscience. He began to sear that conscience. Obviously, he totally seared it. Or you can speak of not just Bundy, but Jeffrey Dahmer, who after he killed a, he killed a dog for fun before he killed any humans, he started going to church right after that because he felt bad. He had a conscience. But the Bible says you can sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can burn it up. Sometimes I use the illustration of the idiot light in your car. The light goes on, you know. It's letting you know there's a problem. But you can take a hammer, you can smash out that light and just wait until your engine burns up. And a lot of people, everybody has a conscience, but you can ignore your conscience. You can dole it with drugs, alcohol. You can explain it away with philosophy and give yourself over to atheism or some way to try to ignore that nagging conscience that you need a savior, that you are a sinner. And the conscience will eventually be eroded or deadened. But we do have a conscience. And Romans 7 talks about that. Con um, Romans 2, I'm sorry, verse 14, talks about that human conscience. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, the law, uh, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, 
the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he talks about the Gentile world is still guilty before God because the conscience is written in their hearts and their consciences are either defending certain things they've done or accusing them of certain things they've done. God with knowledge. God's given us knowledge of sin. Now we become aware of the knowledge of what sin is. We become aware of what? What makes us aware of sin? What's that? The law. Amen. Go to Romans chapter 7. We spend a little bit of time in Romans 7, a little bit of time in Romans 6, a little bit of time in Romans 8. Romans 8. We've already spent time in Romans 2, 4, 13. Didn't intend to spend so much time in Romans, but it's an amazing book and it deals with a lot of these subjects that we're on tonight or these main subjects we're on. Now look at Romans chapter 7, verse, beginning at verse 7. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except what? Through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So he's basically saying that Paul didn't realize he was such a thief when he was young. He was a kid. He was young. He didn't know the law of God. But when he became old enough, he became aware that it was wrong to covet. Whether it was in his heart or physically. And then he said, becoming aware of the law, covet or produce all kinds of coveting in him. In other words, he recognized that he was, well, he was guilty before God. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. I was once alive apart from the law. And now we've talked about this before, but I think this is such an important verse. I think 90 some percent of Christians have no clue that the Bible talks about this and the fact that there's a time before we reach an age of accountability and an awareness of sin that children, babies, are not condemned by God for breaking his law. Because Paul says there was once a time apart from what? There was once a time, I was once alive apart from the law. He was at one time in his life alive apart from the law. Okay? Now he's alive physically here, but he's not talking about his physical life. He's talking about spiritual life. He was alive spiritually before God, apart from the law. Because without the law, there's no what? We've read it already in first in, in Romans uh, 4, that without where there's no law, there's no what? Violation, right? There's no violation. There can't be condemnation. So Paul was alive. That's why when we think of babies who've been aborted, I talked to one gal years ago who said, I believe the aborted children, many of them are going to hell. I said, based on what scripture? You know, and I shared this scripture with her and others. And the fact that Jesus said, let the little children come to me for such is the what? Kingdom of God. And who was it that was allowed to go into the promised land? The, the, little, the, the children were allowed to go in. The sin, they weren't held accountable for the sin of their parents. And the Bible says, use this proverb no longer in Israel that the children's teeth are set on edge because of the sin of their parents. The fathers and the sons all belong to me and the soul that sins shall die. Okay? And the scriptures go on to say in chapter 18 of Ezekiel that uh, the, the children will not be put to death because of the sins of their parents. We just did a, a, a podcast, I think it aired last week, if you want to check it out, on the whole subject matter of um, basically, you know, the whole idea as to whether or not children are held accountable for their sins, the parents of their sins parents. And we looked at the whole thing in regard to uh, this teaching that's going around that, you know, that, you know, you have these ancestral sins and you have to confess the sins of your ancestors and your parents and your great-grandparents and their great-grandparents because there's these, handed, these curses that are handed down to you, these hereditary curses that you're under if you are uh, 
when you're a Christian, you've got to deal with them. You've got to name all these sins to be free from them. Or you've got to vomit in a bag these demons that you have because you're under the curse that was a result of the sins of your grandparents or your great-grandparents, which is so unbiblical and so ludicrous. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new what? New creation. Old things that passed away, all things become new. Okay? Christians aren't possessed. When you become a Christian, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a bedfellow with, the, with demons. Amen? And the scriptures talk about how, uh, what fellowship does light have with darkness. Amen? And when we become believers, do, you know, do you remember the publican in the temple? And what did he do? He beat his chest? And did he list all of his ancestors' sins to be set free? No, he just said, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Amen? He went home right with God. He didn't have to go to some deliverance church to cough up demons and, and renounce the sins of his ancestors to get right with God. Even though that's becoming very popular on the internet, on YouTube and so forth, it's false doctrine that gets your eyes off of Jesus because Jesus isn't considered strong enough to deliver you from the power of sin. You have to go through these deliverance ministries who are like shamans in some cases. And it's very, very unbiblical. So we did a whole podcast on that. If you want to check that out from last week, you'll be able to tell by just looking for the me- a message like that. You'll see it. We cover also whether sin is something that, you know, we basically cover the stuff I'm talking about. But sin, he says in verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me covenant of every kind apart from the law, apart uh, from the law, sin is dead. I, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I what? Died. I don't know how much closer, how much clearer it can be made. Paul says there was a time when he was alive apart from sin. But then when the commandment came and it revealed his, his fallen nature, which he wasn't held accountable to because he didn't see a law, he didn't know he was breaking any law, now the commandment comes, and guess what? He breaks the law. Then he says he what? He what? He died. He died at that point. And now what the age of accountability is, some say it's eight years old. You can't really pin an age on it because the Bible doesn't give an age, so don't say it's this age. Because it probably comes for different young people at different ages. Some young people may be very aware that they're transgressing God's moral law uh, before others. Some may not come to a little bit older in, lo- in a little bit older in their uh, childhood. It's hard to know. That's why when parents want their kids baptized at a very young age, I'm saying, do they really understand the gospel? You know, are they really putting their faith in Jesus? Are they really following Jesus? They recognize that you know they repented of their sins and and embraced Jesus as their Savior and so forth. And and I let I, the parents will probably know that better than I, but I, I give them the choice. I say you have to make sure they're aware of it, so they can look back at their baptism and say, yeah, that's the time when I recognized I was trusting Jesus, and I still am because of what He did for me on the cross and so forth. So it's interesting. And it's important that we really understand this because. Uh, he says in, in verse uh, 10 and this commandment which was to result in life because you know if you obey God's, all com- God's commandments you'll have what? Life. Can anyone obey all God's commandments? Well, one person did. Jesus, but nobody else, right? Okay, and the commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which was, is good become cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through which is, uh, th- uh, through which is that which is good, which is the law, right? So that through the commandment, sin would become what? Utterly sinful. I love that. So that sin would become utterly sinful. I think it's important that we understand the concept of the sinfulness of sin. And that's why when you read God's word, you read God's law, you see how ugly sin really is. And the more you see how ugly sin really is, the more you hate it, the more you want to turn from it, the more you don't want it to be part of your life. You know, the more you don't want it to be part of your friends' lives, you know, your, your brothers and sisters' lives, your family members' lives, because you realize that it's a poison, it's deadly, absolutely deadly. You know, what's the, what's the mortality rate of COVID? And that's for those who get COVID. Everybody has sin. But for those who get COVID, what is it, 0.06 or some say the numbers are far less than that. Some say a little greater than that. But you know, the, the death rate for COVID, if you get it, is far less than it is for sin. Because first of all, everybody has sin. And what's the death rate for sin? 
Last time I looked, it's still what? The mortality rate is still 100%. Everybody dies of it. Everybody you know will die because of their sin. You know? Every time you pass a cemetery, well, that's what sin does. Sin destroys not just life, but it destroys relationships. How many relationships between family members, between spouses, between children and their parents, between parents and, you know, their parents. And I mean, grandparents and their grandchildren have been destroyed because of sin. Sin is ugly. It's damnable. It separates us from God. And that's why hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of professing Christians gather together and celebrate life that's in Christ because we have the antidote, amen. Amen. We have the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the power of sin. Now it's interesting because uh, sin isn't something you have as much as it is something you do. But we do have a sinful nature as well. And it's important that we cry out to the Lord for deliverance. In fact, in Romans 7 here, Paul goes on to say, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he's speaking there of his sinful nature because he talks about this, you know, he was in this fight with sin he, he begins to talk about when he became aware of sin, then he becomes, he gets in this war with it. He didn't know what sin was. He becomes aware of it. comes to awareness of the law. He dies spiritually. He, then he's spiritually dead. And as a dead man, he's trying to have victory over, he's ha- trying to keep the law, right? And trying to have victory over sin and the body of his flesh. And he can't have the victory. By the way, some read that text as though Paul's talking about as a Christian, it's very clear when you start earlier in the chapter, he's talking about his biography, you know? Time up before he was a Christian, before he was even a Pharisee. He became, as a child, aware of sin, and he had this fight with sin. And as a religious man, a Pharisee, he tried to have victory over it, tried to fight it, tried to keep the law of God. But he was fighting as a dead man, right? He's trying to have victory, and he can't have that victory. He's not getting the victory. He's frustrated. But Paul said elsewhere in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, that the law is a tutor, a guardian, a schoolmaster, a teacher. And the best word, pedagogue, is the word there, would be basically speaking of like a nursemaid, you know, that would discipline you. And they literally spank you for the parents and discipline you, right? And the law was a nursemaid, he said, that it's a nursemaid that leads us to Christ. And that nursemaid was only temporary. It wasn't like mom and dad. And they were there in your life for a period of time. Many parents used them. Pedagogy. And it was to bring the child to maturity. Well, the law was used to bring Paul to a point of recognizing he didn't want to be under this nursemaid. The nursemaid wasn't really a family member, just, you know, didn't really care for him. It was just, this is the law. And guess what? He cried out and said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the law leads us to Christ. And he says, thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In Romans 7, he cries out to Jesus. Then he gets deliverance. And when people read Romans 7 as though that's Paul's battle now, they're missing the context. And the early church fathers for the first three centuries, they understood Paul was talking about his past life. It wasn't to Augustine, the Roman Catholic theologian, uh, that the, uh, the Catholic Church started to reinterpret this passage centuries after the Christian Church had already held the other view. And now the Catholic view is what caught on in the church today. So people use this excuse to be dominated by sin and have a life of failure as normative Christianity. When Paul's not talking about a life of failure being normative Christianity, he's talking about a life of failure being something we need to be delivered from. And Jesus delivers us from sin and the power of the old man. Amen? So you can have victory over life-dominating sins and that old man, that sinful nature, through faith in Christ. Amen? Through what he did for us on the cross. And it's absolutely uh, imperative that we understand that. Sin is a plague, far worse than COVID. It's a plague of all plagues. Okay, It's, it's, it's the granddaddy of them all. And we need salvation from sin. And we dare not let that old man, that body of death, the old self, 
the sarks, the sinful nature, rule over us. Back up to Romans chapter 6, where Paul gets into how we get the victory and how the victory comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. For if if we have become united with him, that is with Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his what? Resurrection. Amen. You catch that? For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why baptism is so beautiful. Amen. When you're baptized, you're identifying with his death for you. Amen. When you come up out of the water, you're identifying with the resurrection life of Christ. Amen. And we had this beautiful baptism last. Was that, were you guys there? If you weren't there, you missed such a beautiful baptism. It was so beautiful. A ton of people there. And uh, so many people just, I think, I don't know, we had almost 20 people baptized. Each of them having a, just this beautiful testimony. And I love baptisms because they just are such a powerful picture of how we enter into, through faith in Christ, we accept his death on our behalf. And we say, I identify with his death that it was for me on the cross. And when I come back up, I identify with his resurrection, that, that the life that I now live is by his power. Amen? And that I'm not trusting in my own power. And I'm not trusting that old man that, that went into the water, identifies with Christ. Or at the cross, in your, in, the, in your baptism, you're saying, yep, that's that old man that died with him. But I'm coming up with newness of life and I'm trusting the power of Christ and the new life I have is identified with him and, and we have an excitement about having that new life in Christ and living by his power, amen? So we read in verse six, for we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, verse six, or I'm sorry, that was verse five. Sorry about that, verse six. Knowing this, that our old self, our old self was crucified with him. You catch that? Our old self, who we were before we were Christians, that sinful nature was crucified with Christ on the cross. That is, our old self was crucified with him in order that what? Now check this out. In order that what? Our body of sin might be what? Done away with. Remember Paul says, who, is, you know, who could deliver me from this body of death? That's what he's talking about. When Jesus died on the cross, your old person, your sinful nature, the wicked, rebellious you that rebelled against God and his moral law went to, was put to death with Christ on the cross. That's pretty powerful. And it says why? In the same verse, verse 6, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. In order that our body of sin might be what? Done away with. Amen? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. I hear the old man knocking right now. Right? He's always there trying to come back, you know. But we shall hold him off by the grace of Jesus. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is what? Freed from sin. So when you have entered into faith in Christ and you accept what he did for you on the cross, that's your old man. You've, you've died to the old man. You've recognized that he, he died on the cross. That's no longer the life that I live. I now identify with the resurrected life of Christ and identify with living with Jesus and being his slave, amen? You're gonna be a slave to sin or you're gonna be a slave to death and be a slave to someone. And we used to be slaves to sin. We used to obey all of our lusts, just do whatever we could, try to mitigate it to a degree or whatever so we wouldn't get too much trouble, but we lived selfish, sinful lives and that's exactly what we did. But praise the Lord, when Jesus died on the cross, our old man died with him. Our sinful nature was with him. He took our place. And the heavy thing is this, guys. There was a couple radical things happening through the death of Christ on the cross. And I'm going to keep my cadence a little bit faster now because I am getting a little more excited and because I want to drown that out a little bit. But understand this. Understand this. When Jesus died on the cross, he did two radical things. Did more than two radical things. He did so many things because there's so many awesome benefits of the atonement that we talk about. His vicarious substitutionary atonement on our behalf, paying for our sins, amen? Uh, He showed us what love is, amen? Real love is, amen? He gave us an example of what it means to uh, uh, have humility. I mean, there's so many. He he overcame the powers of darkness. We can go on and on and on. But he, first and foremost, though, he substituted himself in our place for our sins to take care of the penalty of sin, amen? But there's something else happening here. He also died to deliver us from the power of sin, so sin would not reign over us anymore. 
to not only take away the penalty of sin, which is death, amen, eternal separation from God, and bring us to the Father, but also to give us power and kill our old man, amen, so we didn't have to live under the domination of life-dominating sins and live according to the flesh anymore. Are you with me? Amen. So that's really, really awesome when you think about that. In fact, it talks about, and it's pretty interesting, when it says in verse 7 or verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. The Bible talks about Jesus, how he, he destroyed that body of death. Now it's interesting, or did away with it. Now it's interesting, the Greek word that's translated destroyed in some texts is katargeo, katargeo. And it's a very interesting word because when he destroyed our old man, it doesn't mean he annihilated. The word does not mean annihilation. A better understanding of that Greek word when you look it up means to be like paralyzed or remain inoperative. So our old man was rendered inoperative. So we put faith in Christ. We identify with his death for our sins. We are not only forgiven of our sins, but we are now in a place where that old man can be inoperative in our lives and no longer dominate us. Amen? But guess what? Even though he's inoperative, paralyzed, he still is able to whisper to us, let me up. Please let me in. You know how much fun we had before? You know how cool life was when you were in rebellion to God? And he wants to come back alive. He wants to live again. He, he wants to, he wants to re- be resurrected. He wants to reign over us again. And that's what Romans 6 is about, is we're not to allow the old flesh to reign over us again. And it's interesting. It's very, very interesting when you look at it because when you check out the scriptures and you look at the word of God, it's, it's fascinating how it teaches that this old man is still there but we have to keep him at bay. And I remember when I was looking at the scripture and I was reading through Romans 6 about, how, and I was looking at that word, kartageo, and I was like, what does that mean that he's inoperative or he's paralyzed, you know? And I prayed that the Lord would give me a better understanding of that word. And I, this was years ago. And in fact, I shared a dream that I had with, right after I prayed that. And when I had the dream, I didn't think much about the dream. I thought about the dream, but I didn't think I didn't put the parallel together until I returned to the text. And I'm like, oh, wow, I wonder if that was from the Lord. Because I was praying, God, help me understand that a little bit more. You know, I want to really get my brain around that. And in my dream, it was very, very vivid. Because I was with my mother-in-law. I was with my wife, Lisa. And the three of us were there talking together, just hanging out by a bedside. And there at the bedside was my wife, Lisa. So she was two. She was here talking with us. But she was also laying in the bed like in a coma, you know. And we didn't say she's in a coma, but that's what she was like, in a coma. And it was crazy. And we're talking and when I looked at Lisa, it was her old life before she became a Christian. It was the old Lisa. And it was a trip because her mom, in some ways back in those days, lived vicariously through the old Lisa. Lisa was partying, you know, getting stoned and going dancing and everything, having the life before she got saved and everything. And man, that life of rebellion against God and doing her own thing led to just destruction in her life. And she was then an AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, CA cocaine anonymous when I was when I met her I met her in high school before that but when I started uh, met her at a Bible study and uh, she's going through all those because of all that stuff that that life led up to but she was in like now you know that women's movement now with her mom you know going to classes at Moore Park now classes and stuff and and then she got saved and she wasn't that girl anymore you know but when we're the three of us were there her mom wanted to wake her up you know her old person up I don't think she'd want to wake her up now, you know. Uh, but she wanted to wake Lisa up, the old Lisa. And Lisa and I are there, and her mom's there. And I'm like, and I yelled, I yelled like, or said, I can't remember how I, it was years ago, but in the dream, I'm like, no, no, don't wake her up. I like the new Lisa, you know. And then I woke up. Then when I returned to this text later that day, I remembered that dream when I said, oh, I remember just praying about that. And it was like, for me, it was a vivid picture that perhaps God gave me, showing me that, hey, that old man, that you want to know what that's about? He's just a, uh, he's just a nudge away. <laughs> you could just let him, you could wake him up and he could reign in your body all over again. He could live in you all over again if you let him. Don't let it happen. Don't wake him up. Don't crave the old person. Don't crave the old ways. Don't crave what you were. Because that's death, you know. 
And all the blessings that came to my wife's life through faith in Christ and following him, you know. She found out she didn't need the the 12-step program. She needed the one-step program. She needed Jesus. Amen. And she came to Christ and realized her sins were paid for and the power of sin is broken through faith in him. So he delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And that's a glorious, glorious truth. But our old man wants that old life. And just like the Jews that wanted to go back from Israel, when they were going to the promised land, some of them wanted to go back, many of them wanted to go back to Egypt and have that old life. And they forgot the enslavement they were in. And that's how Satan works. He, went, he reminds you of, hey, remember the garlic? Remember the leeks? Remember the onions, how good they were? Oh, gar- garlic and leek and onion sandwiches. And they're like, mm, man, that sounds so good. Forgetting that their fingers were being worked to the bone and they were enslaved and the whips were on their backs. And that's what we do. Satan wants us to think of the, some of the times when we were rebelling where there was some fun. He wants us to forget about the enslavement that we had under sin. Amen? So it's important that we keep the whole picture in mind that sin does indeed lead to death. And it's quite important that we understand that. Now, it's also important that I just think it's uh, amazing how that works. Now I want you to go ahead and look at verses 8 through 11. Verse 8. Now if we have, uh, now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Jonathan, can you turn that down over there a little bit? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have long enough arms. I'm sorry, bro. Verse 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now look at verse 11. Very important verse. Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You're supposed to do that. As a Christian, are you doing that? That's how you have victory over sin. You consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You, and by the way, the word consider right there is a mathematical term. It's an accounting term. In other words, add it up. Do the math. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. When Jesus died, he also died to render your old man powerless, paralyzed, inoperative in your life. So you don't have to be dominated by him anymore if you're trusting and following Jesus by faith. Amen? So some of you are saying, oh man, my old life's coming back. And da, da, da. It's only because you're allowing it to come back. It doesn't just happen. It's because you're saying yes to the old man and no to Jesus. You need to consider the old man dead and, be, and be, consider yourself alive to God. Now you see the yes to Jesus and no to the old man. Amen? Because the only way that old man gets up and lives in your life and you begin to have life-dominated sins is if you let him up. It's not by accident. It's a choice. There's no excuse here, brothers and sisters. And the great beauty of this is I'm glad there's no excuse that we can have victory over life-dominating sins. Amen? Sin will affect your life because no one here is perfect. None of us are walking in water. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Amen. But guess what? Sin should not be dominating your life. It should be the exception if it happens, not the what? The rule. Okay? And it will happen inevitably because that's what the scriptures say. Someone says he's without sin. He's a liar and the truth isn't in him. But he's not talking about life dominating sins. Amen? So it's important that we understand this. So we're supposed to count, reckon, or consider the old man dead verses 12 through 14 in light of this reality that he died to save us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin and the power of the old man verse 12 therefore since we have this glorious provision of at the cross through what jesus did do not let sin reign in your mortal body therefore meaning since this is a real this is a reality do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't use your hands, your feet, your legs, your fingers, your mouth, your body, any members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are what? Not under the law, but under grace. And by the way, this is grace teaching. Real grace teaching teaches, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2, to deny ungodliness, amen, and worldly desires and so forth. So bottom line is we're supposed to crucify that old man. He was crucified with Christ, but guess what? You have a choice to keep him dead 
Amen? And not let him back up. Just like when you first became a Christian, even though Jesus paid for your sins, you weren't forgiven until you put faith in him. Amen? And even though that old man was dead with him on the cross, it's not until you identify with his death for you that you're able to see him rendered dead in your life. And just as you were able to see him rendered dead in your life through faith in Christ, you could take your eyes off of Jesus and faith in him and put your faith in your, or put your trust back in the old man and think back of the old man and the old ways and let him back up again. But we read in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. That was part of the old life. Since you laid aside the old self, now the old man is called the old self. We're talking about killing the old self. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self. I mean, if you lie to someone, that's not consistent with your new life in Christ, is it? That's part of your old life. So do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So I love that. Now we focus on the new person who we're supposed to be. That's why we look to Jesus because we were created in his image. Amen. And now God's restoring the image of Christ in us according to holiness. That's moral behavior, righteousness, and truth. Instead of lies, the truth of God's word. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 22 through 24. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So guess what? You don't just say, yeah, the old man's dead. You actively what? Put on the what? The new man. Amen. How old are you, buddy? I have a seven-year-old answering the questions. You put on what? He yells out, the new man. Amen. Okay. And this is a little bit deeper theology too. You know, it's great to see. You put on the new man. You focus on being more like Christ. That's the key to having victory over the flesh. If you're struggling with temptation, your old, your old life, whether it's, you know, sexual sin, pornography, whatever sins hung you up in the past, guess what? Reckon that old man dead. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm focusing and putting on the new man. I'm living for Jesus and actively pursue Jesus. And guess what? You'll have victory over the flesh because your focus isn't on the flesh. You're not letting that old man back up. Don't let him back up for a minute. Amen? We also do this, as we know, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? In fact, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And that's, we've been in Romans 4, 4 or 13, uh, 7, 6, uh, 8 now. But Romans chapter 8, it's it's amazing passage. Uh, but there's a lot there. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, I love this passage. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, that's the old man, to live according to the flesh, the old man. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must what? You must what? Die. If you go back to the flesh, he's, he's, who's he addressing, by the way, here? What's the first word of the text? Brethren. He's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to brothers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Brethren is a, a title for all the brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not obligation to the flesh to live after the flesh. For ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Right? Now check this out. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die, verse 13. But if by the Spirit you are put into death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are what? The sons of God. He's talking about spiritual life, spiritual sonship. Just like when the chapter before this, he talked about being alive, but then dead. He's talking about spiritual death. Then we came to spiritual life in Christ. Now we're alive in Christ. But brethren, you know what? We're not dead as the flesh to live out of flesh. For you live out of flesh, you shall what? Die. How? Spiritually. But if you through the Spirit put the death of deeds of the body, you shall live for as many as are led by the Spirit. Verse 14. They are the children of God. Amen. So we keep our faith in Jesus. We don't go back to the vomit. We don't go back to wallowing in the mud. We don't backslide. We stick with Jesus. It's so vital, so important. I love Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, you belong to him. Listen to what it says about you. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Now, I find this fascinating, and hopefully there's keys to victory in tonight's message for you over sin and the old man. Amen? Hopefully you keep these things in mind, like, wow, we have victory over the old man through Christ's death on the cross. Amen? Not only over the penalty of sin, thank God for his blood, we celebrate what he did on the cross for our sins all the time, but also through the power of sin, being alive and living and dominating our lives. We have power over that now. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. But there's a key here. Notice how our old man was put to death with him, amen? But guess what? We have to actively put our faith in him to identify with that old man's death, right? Amen? And we have to actively put our faith in him to identify with that resurrection. Now, therefore, since these things are true, Paul says, don't let that old life consume you now. Don't let dominating sins, don't let, don't let sin reign over you, Amen? So you, even though the old man was dead with Christ, you are to crucify the old man. Oh, he's been rendered powerless, but guess what? You have to keep him dead. You have to keep trusting Jesus. You have to keep putting your faith in the Lord. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So if we're we're led by the Spirit of God, we'll be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You can know if you're led by the Spirit or not. Are you actively putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Are you actively crucifying the old man and saying, no, you're staying dead in my life. I'm following Jesus. I love the Lord now. I put my faith in Him. I live according to His Word. Quite powerful when you think about it. Now, His Word gives us power. His spirit gives us power. Uh, chapter 5 verse of Romans. Now we're in Romans 5, verse 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we're, uh, well, let me see. Uh, you know what? Let me get into another picture for you. This, I think this is a great typology, a great picture of how you crucify the old man. Remember the Old Testament? Remember the book of Judges where they kept getting in trouble? And it says there that, you know, that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And all of a sudden, you know, they end up free by God's power. They cry out to him, they're in power. But then they get back into sin. They give into the old life. And that's what? Sin begins to reign through over Israel again. They become in bondage to other people groups, slaved. They cry out to God. They get deliverance again. It's an interesting picture. Well, they've been in bondage for 30 years. The Canaanites are ruling over them for 30 years. Now, they've come into the promised land, which represents the new life, amen? They've left Egypt, which was bondage. That rep, that re- Egypt represented the world system that we've been delivered from. They go into the promised land, now they have the new life, right? But then guess what? The Canaanites are ruling over them. The old man is back, so to speak. And they began to cry out to God to deliver them from this bondage, you know? And what happens? God raises up, you know, Barak and Deborah, Barak's kind of a fraidy cat, remember? He's like, I don't want to go. And then God sends Deborah. And, well, Barak asked Deborah to go, one of the judges. And she goes and she leads the way. And she says, okay, but we're going to get a victory. But it's going to also be written that it was by a woman, not by your hand. And they go to battle. And they have no way to, they got all these chariots they got to fight against. And the Canaanites have way more power than them. But God, by his divine providence, causes a storm rain the chariots are so heavy they get bogged down in the mud and they get routed right and the Canaanites get whooped well guess what Sisera, uh, Sisera is the, the leader who represents the old man that's ruling over them even though the promised land they've allowed the old man to come back and rule over them so to speak he's hightailing it but he wants to stay alive just like the old man wants to stay alive in your life but we need to crucify him and it's interesting. What happens there? It's quite interesting. Uh, go to Judges chapter 4, verse 15. We read in verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots. And that's how the flesh is. It wants to stay alive. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as uh, Herosheth Ahigoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Well, except, well, the very next verse, except Sisera. Now Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. What a great name. Uh, The wife of Heber. 
You guys have met John Heber, right? Not the same Heber, but another cool Heber. Now, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. By the way, Heber means to cross over. The Hebrews, the Hebrews crossed over the Red Sea. And the name Hebrew comes from Heber, okay? They're the ones who crossed over, okay? We have also crossed over from the old life to the new life. Now, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Even though Heber was a Kenite, guess what? He said, nope, I'm joining the Israelites. I'm crossing over too, amen? And he had the new life. But guess who's back there knocking, wanting him to accept the old life back? Sisera comes knocking. Pretty trippy, huh? So, it's interesting what happens here. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. She's pretty smart because he's exhausted. He's been in war, man, leading. He's on foot. He's running. He's absolutely exhausted. And she covers him up with a blanket, a rug, and gives him some milk. What do you think is going to happen when you do all that? He's going to fall asleep, you know? And that's exactly what happens. Verse 20, he said to her, he said to her stand in the doorway of the tent after she gives him the milk. And it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here? You shall say no. So if somebody comes to the tent and somebody wants to know, somebody says, is somebody here? Just say no. Isn't that how our old man is? He wants to hide. Your old man wants you to hide him. So you can live according to the old man as though you, and think you're getting away with it. But you're not getting away with it because God sees everything. Amen. Don't let that happen. Don't let the old man live. Don't be a hypocrite. Because Jael, if she let Sisera live with her, she'd be an adulteress. Right? And she'd be hiding the old man. And she'd be living a lie. And she'd be doomed. But that's how the old, that's how the old man works. He wants, you to be res, he wants to be resurrected in your life, in your home, in your tent. And he wants you to lie about his existence. Don't let it happen. Amen. Well, what happens instead? Does she hide him? Verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Pretty radical. Bam. Amen. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her. And behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. I find it fascinating. Tent peg. We're talking about a spike. Amen. That makes me think of the crucifixion. Amen. Our old man is dead with Christ. Amen. Christ is the one that gives us the victory. Amen. But guess what? We also need to make sure we keep that old man dead. Amen. I think it's interesting. She uses milk, right? What's the Bible say? Like newborn babes crave the new, uh, the p- crave, I'm sorry, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. One way we grow in our salvation is we get in the word of God. Amen. The word of God. We're in the milk right now. The old man calls us back. The words of the old life calls us back, right? But no, guess what, man? We overcome the words of the old life by drowning the world, words of the old life out with the milk of God's word, amen? amen? And we focus on God's word and we drown the old man out. Are you with me? Okay, she doesn't just use a spike. What else does she use? A hammer. Bam! In fact, it's interesting. Jeremiah 23, 29 talks about the word of God as a hammer. It is not, uh, is not my word like fire, God says to Jeremiah, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Amen. Amen. We, use, we hammer the old man with God's word. Amen. We give it the spike. It's already been crucified. Amen. With Christ. But we make sure it stays on the ground. Because we have a living relationship with God. And our flesh, God gives us a choice. Because now, guess what? We haven't reached heaven yet. Amen. For us, we're still in the wilderness. Spiritually, we're seated in the heavenly places, okay? But we're not fully there yet, amen? 
that old man can come back and we just need to keep him dead. And it says, young man, you've overcome the evil one, the Paneron, Satan, because the word of God abides in you, 1 John 2, 14. How do we keep the victory? How do we have the victory? We keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen. He's the one that gives us victory over the old man and the power of his spirit and the power of his word. We've talked about all Jesus, his spirit, and his word today. Give us victory over the flesh. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. Verse, four, verse 3. For consider him, that is Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know what? To make sure some of you maybe are on the verge of losing heart right now because you're going through some trial. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Do not lose heart. Refuse to lose heart. If, if you start to lose heart, it's because guess what? You're starting to look at Sisera, your old man, right? You start to look at other ways other than Jesus. And that's from the, the or the world. Maybe it's the world system, you know? is, you know, dangling its wares before you, saying, hey, but the world's death, man. The Bible says, love not the world, near things that are in the world, for all that's of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God, he abides forever. That's First John 2, 2 through, uh, 2 through 15, or 12 through 15. And James 4, 4 says, you adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we need to recognize the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan will dangle temptation before you. Don't go for it, man. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He himself bore our sins in, the body, in his body on the cross so that, we might be, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. John Newton, man. For John Newton, he was a wicked man. He was just a very wicked man. Evil guy, man. A slave trader. He was a, was a captain of a ship that traded slaves. And his life was so insidious and wicked and he was convicted. And he came to Christ. And he wrote the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Perhaps the most popular, one of the most popular hymns ever written. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour, or the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace has taught us, uh, has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. I love that. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I love that last line. Is just, they're all amazing. You know, John, uh, John Newton, man, became, then became sanctified and grew in the Lord, feared the Lord, loved the Lord. And you know what? He started to get old. He started losing most of his memory. You get old, that happens. You lose a lot of your memory. But you know what he said not long before he died? My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Amen? amen? Remember our old life, man. We were great sinners before Jesus, amen? But we have a great savior. And if you're going to forget a lot of things, don't forget the fact that we are sinners in need of God's grace and that Jesus paid it all for us on the cross, amen? amen. So praise God. Now the cool thing is this. Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin if you're trusting Jesus right now, amen? That means the penalty of death that we deserve that he took upon himself. But he only, only delivers from the penalty of sin. He delivers from what? The what? The power of sin. Amen? Where sin does not have to reign over us. Amen? If you're living a life of sin and all oh, sin's just so powerful. No, it's not too powerful. Christ already paid for the penalty of your sins and he delivered you from the power of sin by putting the old man to death. If you put your faith in Christ and follow, keep your eyes on Jesus, that old man won't reign over you. Amen? That's the key. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the new life, and keeping that old man dead. How do you do it? Through faith in Christ the power of his Holy Spirit, the power of his word. Amen? So he delivers us not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but one day we will be delivered 
when we go to be with the Lord or when he returns from the very what? Presence of sin. Amen? How many of you are saying in your heart, happy day, I can't wait till the Lord returns or I go to be with him because then we'll be delivered not only from the penalty and the power but from the very presence of sin. Amen? Praise God. Can we all please stand? What an awesome God we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, that you revealed to us the mystery of the human struggle against sin and life-dominating sins and the world, the flesh, and the evil one, and that we get victory, Father, because your Son overcame the world. We get victory over the flesh, Father, because your, your Son died for us and the old man was put to death with him. And we get victory over the devil, for your Son was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. We praise you that all the victory and all the glory comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. We glorify you in his name, Father. And Father, we pray in your Son's name, by the power of Jesus Christ, that you would help us to continue to know that you call us to put that old man to death and to not allow the old man and our, the members of our body, the instruments of our body, to give, be given over to life-dominating sins, Father. But that we're to use inst- the instruments of our body, Father, to glorify your Son in the newness of life. And we thank you, Father, that you don't just call us and guide us, but that where you guide, you provide, Father. You give us the power of your Holy Spirit, the light of your word, and the victory through Jesus. And in his name, we pray. Amen.